This is day 22 of our daily Bible reading. We will be completing Exodus chapters 35 through 38 and Psalm chapter 22. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this new day. Whether we realize it or not, Lord, we should be grateful that you give us fresh mercy, fresh grace every day. You are a God of forgiveness. You are a God of goodness and justice. And we thank you, Lord, for being for us instead of against us. Help us to be more like you, Lord, to where we are always for you and never against you, that we can reflect your goodness and your mercy and your grace in our lives toward others. And as we go into your word, Lord, help us to understand the significance of this law that we are reading in Exodus. May you apply it to our lives and may it enrich us greatly. Please bless the reading of this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful man among you come, and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain of the screen, the table and its poles, and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light, and its utensils, and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense, and its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting, and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, 
all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold, and in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He also has put in his heart to teach, both he and Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver, and of a designer, and of an embroiderer, in blue, and in purple, and in scarlet material, and in fine linen, and of a weaver, as performers of every work and makers of designs. Now Bezalel and Oholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him, to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. All the skillful men among those who were performing the work made the tabernacle 
with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material, with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. Bezalel made them. The length of each curtain was twenty-eight cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he joined to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. He did likewise on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the second set. He made fifty loops in the one curtain, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite each other. He made fifty clasps of gold and joined the curtains to one another with the clasps, so the tabernacle was a unit. Then he made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made eleven curtains in all. The length of each curtain was thirty cubits and four cubits the width of each curtain. The eleven curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Moreover, he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the first set, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the second set. He made fifty clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it would be a unit. He made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then he made the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits was the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There were two tenons for each board, fitted to one another. Thus he did for all the boards of the tabernacle. He made the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side, and he made forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. Then for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle, to the west, he made six boards. He made two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They were double beneath, and together they were complete to its top, to its first ring. Thus he did with both of them for the two corners. There were eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two under every board. Then he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. He made the middle bar to pass through in the center of the boards from end to end. He overlaid the boards with gold and made their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. Moreover, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. He made it with cherubim, 
the work of a skillful workman. He made four pillars of acacia for it, and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He made a screen for the doorway of the tent, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. And he made its five pillars with their hooks, and he overlaid their tops and their bands with gold, but their five sockets were of bronze. Now Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, and its width one and a half cubits, and its height one and a half cubits, and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Then he made the table of acacia wood, two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. He made a rim for it of a handbreadth all around, and made a gold molding for its rim all around. He cast four gold rings for it, and put the rings on the four corners that were on its four feet. Close by the rim were the rings, the holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood, and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes and its pans and its bowls and its jars, with which to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand from the one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. In the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, 
for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. He made its seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils from a talent of pure gold. Then he made the altar of incense of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide, square, and two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its molding, on its two sides, on opposite sides, as holders for poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices, the work of a perfumer. Then he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide, square, and three cubits high. He made its horns on its four corners, its horns being of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pails and the shovels and the basins, the flesh hooks and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. He made for the altar a grating of bronze network beneath, under its ledge, reaching halfway up. He cast four rings on the four ends of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to carry it. He made it hollow with planks. Moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze, from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twisted linen, one hundred cubits, their twenty pillars, and their twenty sockets made of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the north side, there were one hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty sockets were of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the west side, there were hangings of fifty cubits with their ten pillars and their ten sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the east side, fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate were fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets, and so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court, all around, were of fine twisted linen. The sockets for the pillars were of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver and the overlaying of their tops of silver, and all the pillars of the court were furnished with silver bands. 
The screen of the gate of the court was the work of a weaver, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. And the length was twenty cubits, and the height was five cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Their four pillars and their four sockets were of bronze. Their hooks were of silver, and the overlaying of their tops and their bands were of silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were of bronze. This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses, for the service of the Levites, by the hand of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. Now Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. With him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman, and a weaver in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the work of the sanctuary even the gold of the wave offering was twenty-nine talents and seven hundred and thirty shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was one hundred talents and one thousand seven hundred seventy-five shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A bucca a head, that is, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered, from twenty years old and upward, for six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty men. The hundred talents of silver for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, one hundred sockets for the hundred talents, a talent for each socket. Of the one thousand seven hundred and seventy-five shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was seventy talents and two thousand four hundred shekels. With it he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and of the bronze altar and its bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of the court all around and the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs of the court all around. Psalm chapter 22 For the choir director, upon Ijaleth Hashshahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, and not a man a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, 
Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me, as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, Praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust, will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Okay, so we got through the reading in Exodus today, and as you saw, A lot of it is exactly the same as what we have previously read. The only difference is that in the first section we read, God gave Moses all the instructions and the materials required to build all the things for the tabernacle. But in this section of scripture, you see it actually happening. God gave the order, and now the people are fulfilling it exactly as he had commanded. And it's beautiful to see that even though it can be a little dry at times reading this stuff, you see how the obedience of the people in honoring the Lord 
comes into play, and the people did it as a united front. And there's something to appreciate in that, because they were asked to give of themselves precious metals, all the building materials, the jewels and spices and all that. And you don't see people hesitate. You see people's hearts being moved to contribute to the tabernacle. And it's wonderful to see. And that's how the church should be as well. That we are a united front in the service of God. All Christians should be involved in their church, whether in a small or a major way. It's up to your calling with God. But we are one team. We are all one body of Christ. So we should all be involved in the work that is given to us. We each have a role to play. We each have a job to do. And yet we are also called to unite together as one people and serve the Lord. You get a glimpse of what that should look like here, and it's beautiful to see. But for today, that's about the extent of what I want to do for what happened in Exodus. I would like to spend the remainder of the time we have focusing on Psalm chapter 22. Because, if you noticed, this is a heavily symbolic messianic psalm. This is huge on prophecy, and all of it is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, this was a psalm written by David, and if we know anything about David, he was hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, several centuries. So how would David have known that Jesus was going to die in this particular way? Obviously, he didn't, right? The Holy Spirit is the one involved here and is telling us exactly what the Christ is going to suffer through. Now, David also wrote it for himself. This is a lament in which he expresses his trust in God in spite of his apparent rejection by God. This is important because that's exactly what happened on the cross. David may have unknowingly been typifying himself as a form of Christ, because everything that Jesus went through is exactly outlined here in explicit detail. God did turn his back on Jesus. He rejected him as being part of the Godhead for a time. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, you see this verse being quoted here in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his back on his Son, because as his Son was taking on the sins of the world upon himself, God the Father could not look upon it. He is so holy, he is so perfect, that all that sin is just so disgusting to him. He can't look at it. He refused to look at it. And so it was almost as if in that moment, for the first time in his existence, Jesus had never felt alone until then. So it's almost as if, for the first time in his existence, Jesus was separated from the Trinity in some way. And when he felt that reality, then he cried out to the Father, and the Father ignored his plea, because this needed to happen. He needed to take the sins of the world to be the perfect substitute for us so that all that sacrificial system 
that we're reading in Exodus no longer had to happen. He had to be the one and final sacrifice for all the people of God. He goes on to say in verses 3 through 5 how historically God has delivered his people, and his people have praised and trusted him. Now what's sad is they trust in God to some degree in the law itself, but in a very legalistic way, because they failed to see the spirit of the law. They failed to see Christ for who he really was, in that he was the God that they claimed to worship. But they had no relationship with him. It was all just religion. And religion in itself doesn't mean anything. Religion is nothing without relationship with God. Then in verse 6, David goes into calling himself a worm and not a man, and that he is a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus also, when he went up upon the cross, was reviled and despised. They called him all sorts of things and mocked who he was and what he claimed to be. And what these people are saying is almost exactly what the Pharisees were saying in verse 8. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. They almost directly quoted that scripture when Jesus was being put on that cross. When he was hanging there, they mocked him, saying, If you're the Son of God, come down. If you really are his Son, he will not stop in slaying you. He will not allow this to happen. Call him. Make him take you off the cross if you really are the Messiah. They just didn't understand the extent that Jesus had to go through for them, for all of us. And until the very end, you saw where their heart was. And it was really encapsulated in one thing that they said. When Pontius Pilate asked them, saying, you would kill your king? And the Jewish people said, we have no king but Caesar. They sold out. They didn't trust God. They were spiritually bankrupt. And so you see that here even in this psalm. He continues his lament in verses 11 through 14, where he is asking for God to rescue him and to deliver him from his troubles. You could put all of this into the story of the crucifixion, and it would make sense. It all fits together. And then you go to what it says in verse 14. I am poured out like water. Yes, he was bleeding profusely, I'm sure. But at the end, when he died, they pierced him with the spear, and he did have blood and water come out of him. His heart was melted within him. His strength dried up like a potsherd. His tongue cleaved to his jaws. Yeah, because he was thirsty, and he refused to drink the drugged stuff that they were trying to give him. Then it says in verse 16 that dogs surrounded him. A band of evildoers encompassed him. And that's exactly what happened. The Jewish people killed their Messiah, and they were encircling him like dogs. Then it is very specific here how it says that they pierced my hands and my feet. Now bear in mind, historically, crucifixion did not exist yet. It had not been invented yet. So this is very specific here. 
So if you've noticed that about God, his prophecies, his predictions are not vague at all. They are extremely specific. And he does that on purpose to show that he is really the true God, that he is able to see all of time, all of space at once. And no one else is able to do that. There are those in the world that practice things like astrology and horoscopes and palm reading and tarot cards, and they can make very vague predictions that maybe sometimes they'll get right, but not to the level that God does it. He is specific, and he puts numbers sometimes to certain prophecies, and sometimes even names. For example, there was a king named Josiah that we'll talk about later that he named him personally way before he was born. There was also the Persian king Cyrus that he named by name way before he was born. That's very specific, and God has always been accurate in his predictions. The world cannot do that because they do not know the future. But demons are clever, and demons are able to make decent predictions based on what they know or by predicting patterns but yet they don't see the future in itself. But God does, and we simply cannot be deceived by those demons. So they pierced my hands and my feet, very specific. I can count all my bones. Yeah, because he was stripped, everything except a loincloth on that cross. And he was so beat up and so torn up that you probably could count his bones. They look, they stare at me, because he's on that cross, right? They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is exactly what the guards do. They cast lots and divide his garments. Then he continues to cry out for help, and then he insists upon those who fear the Lord to praise him and to recognize what he is doing. And while this is, again, in the present of David's life, this can also be applied to the crucifixion. Those who have eyes to see clearly, those who have ears to hear, let them see and hear exactly what Jesus is doing. Because it says elsewhere in Scripture that the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, meaning that those that are not Christians those who have not been given the spiritual insight, will see the cross and see it for something empty. They'll see it as something ridiculous. Why are these Christians worshiping a dead man? Why are they worshiping a guy who was a criminal? He died on a cross, a criminal's cross. But yet they don't understand. But those who recognize the truth praise the Lord for what he did. Recognize that this was the means by which you are currently being saved. This is no simple, small matter. This was huge, and it had to happen in this particular way for you to be saved. There are many great implications in this psalm that we need to take to heart. When you get to around verse 27, then you see a shift to more of a future outlook, beyond the cross to the time when Jesus is going to return and establish what we call the Millennial Kingdom. 
in that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, where Satan is sealed away, then it almost seems to point to that. Because in verse 27, it says that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Has that happened yet? Absolutely not. In fact, it seems to be going in the opposite direction. Verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That is both a present reality, because he is king of kings and lord of lords. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. But for him to have a physical reign is going to happen in the millennium. Everyone who is on the earth will worship him. Everyone that dies will bow even before him. That isn't happening yet, so this is going to be a future time. Now, verses 30 and 31 could be interpreted as happening in the millennium as well, but I also want to apply it to us today. Look at what it says. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So there's a couple of things to note here is when you think about the prophets, the prophets of the Bible, a lot of them were talking about a future event to people who had not been born yet. I believe it's Paul that goes into more detail of that, and he connects those two things together. But something else to consider is that if the Bible was indeed written for our instruction, then the prophecies are meant for us to believe in God's Word. We are responsible for listening and believing God at His Word, but more importantly, it says that we are to tell the coming generation. This is where, historically, throughout the whole Bible, we get this wrong. Humanity always messes this up. For example, you have the generation of the Israelites that we are in in Exodus. They are going to go to the border of the promised land. They are not going to trust God. They're going to be afraid of the giants in the land. And there's only two guys, Caleb and Joshua, who are going to trust the Lord in the matter. But all those people who said, no, it's not possible, we're all going to die, they did die. Because God made them wander the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off. Except for two guys, Caleb and Joshua. Everyone else in that camp was under 50, most likely. And you see them march into that promised land, and while they didn't do everything right, they did trust the Lord throughout the process. But the very next generation failed, and they spiraled out of control and that's where you enter into the book of Judges, where it's just a cycle of not obeying the Lord, and then they cry out to the Lord because they're in trouble, and then a judge comes and saves them. And it just happens over and over and over and over. That's the human condition. That's not just a Jewish problem. We are all that way. So there's something to be said about teaching the next generation to fear the Lord and to show them who he really is. If we fail to do that, we are going to promote a perverse and lost generation. 
We need to teach our children who God is. That's not the church's job. That's yours. And I hope we recognize that and we take this more seriously. Because you hold in your hand the ability to teach your kids who God is. When they become adults, ultimately it will be their decision if they're going to believe or not. And it's ultimately God's decision and his sovereignty if he's going to provide salvation to them or not. But we still have the responsibility of teaching our kids who God is. And so we need to be these people who are here telling the next generation and declaring the righteousness of God. That is something that we can definitely take away today and apply to our lives and think about more carefully. We need to be people who talk about God constantly. We need to be living, breathing sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Our verse to memorize for today is going to be Psalm chapter 22, verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.